as we prayerfully think about our response corporately and individually. As always, I'm going to anchor you in the cross and the gospel. Because if you are a gospel-believing follower of Jesus, you and I know that we stand in this unique place where one, the gospel allows us to mourn, to grieve, and to lament over the evil, the pain, suffering, and all the injustices in our world. Gospel-believing Christians don't turn away. Gospel-believing Christians don't gloss over pain. We, in Romans 8, along with all of creation, we groan, we grieve, we lament. We long for the day of redemption. It is right and okay for followers of Jesus on a day like this to sit here and say, I'm hurting, I'm angry, I'm confused, I don't know what to do. It's okay and right for us to mourn and to feel the brokenness of our world. Two, the gospel also must, must keep you and I from cynicism and fatalism. The gospel reminds us that someday evil, injustice, pain, and suffering and death will be eradicated. That's not a wish. That is a promise from Jesus. He made sure of that by his death and resurrection. So even as we wait for his redemption and the establishment of his dominion, of his rule, and of his reign, even as we fight for injustice and evil, we must guard our hearts from cynicism and fatalism. We must. And third, we follow someone who reminded us that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Violence begets violence. The kingdom's way towards true justice demands that we leave ultimate justice in the hands of the one perfect true judge. That is what enables you and me to be tireless peacemakers who work towards non violent justice today. So pray with me. Pray with me. We know, Father, that you're not a God of despair, but of hope. Not a God of condemnation, but of compassion. Not a God of imperial power, but of suffering. Not a God of domination, but of loving service. Not a God of oppression, but of liberation. Not a God who blesses injustice, but the God of justice. Not a God of war, but of peace. Not a God of violence, but of nonviolence. Not a God of death, but of life. God of life. Every act of violence in our world and our communities between myself and others destroys a part of your creation. Stir in my heart and our hearts a renewed sense of reverence for all life. Give me the vision to recognize your spirit in every human being. Make possible the impossible by cultivating in us the fertile seed of your unconditional healing, love. Show us.
speak to us. That we may play our parts in breaking the cycle of violence by realizing that peace begins with me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It struck me this week that when we do encounter and experience weeks like this week, I want to be able to, as a church, gather corporately midweek for a time of prayer. And so if you have not signed up, sign up for our newsletter, sign up for our Facebook account so that we could communicate quickly within a day or two and say hey we're going to gather on this night at seven o'clock come join us in prayer um i'm feeling the need to do that um we're uh finishing up uh daniel in the book of daniel if you're just joining us and you could turn your bibles to daniel chapter four if you weren't here last week we spent time unpacking daniel chapter four but we ended on a, a, a big, 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 huge topic, this topic of pride. And I said, I wanted to spend all of today unpacking what spiritual pride is, why it's so destructive, and how we could be people freed from it. Nebuchadnezzar is the absolute monarch of the Babylonian Empire, and in Daniel chapter 4, we find him ruling all the known kingdoms of the world with absolute authority. He is a man who has basically everything that a person could possibly want. Level of success and level of wealth and fame that maybe a dozen people in the history of the world have ever experienced. But as we saw last week and as we'll briefly see today, his life completely falls apart. And as I said last week, he actually is glad for it. He actually is glad for it. Because the thing that was at work in his heart, which is pride, he's actually glad that the work that God did to remove that toxic sin of pride in his heart was actually worth the experience. And at the end, we see this pagan tyrant king looking to the heavens and worshiping and glorifying God. So what I'm going to do today is actually I'm going to, and I hate to spend time on this, but I need to read portions of chapter 4 for those of you that were not here last week. And by the way, I want to encourage you, read chapter 5, read chapter 6 of Daniel so you get yourself real familiarized with this as we kind of head to the home stretch so that and as you walk in here, you come with a sense of expectancy. So, so Daniel chapter 4, he, he, here is basically uh, the story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he, he tells this dream to Daniel, who is one of, obviously, the, 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 the court advisors. In Daniel chapter 4, chapter 10, this is the dream. Nebuchadnezzar says, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. The height was enormous. It was 11, the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves are beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, the birds lived in branches, and from it, every creature was fed. Verse 13, I looked, and there before 
before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its food. Let the animals flee from under it and birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals along the plants of the earth. Let him and let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. And then he calls all his advisors and they can't interpret the dream for him. So he finally calls Daniel who interprets the dream for him. And he says that dream is about you and your pride. You have time, repent, churn. And we pick up the story in verse 29. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Immediately, verse 33, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Thank God, the story doesn't end there. Because here's what happens in verse 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hands or say to him, what have you done? For certain sake, at the end of that time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And listen to this. Those who walk in pride, he is able. What is pride? And how do we get healed from it? I'm going to move quickly. Pride. First of all says, I did it. I did it. Pride looks at all the good things in your life, my life, and says, that's by me. I did it. I accomplished it. The reason I'm doing better than other people is because I worked harder. It's because I worked smarter. It's because I worked more ethically than others. And now watch this. Pride says, I did it. There's a second part to it, though. Therefore, I deserve. Pride causes a deep sense of oldness. Pride makes you and me look at life and we say, I am, listen, owed these good things because I worked harder, because I worked smarter, because I worked more ethically. I am owed these things. Here's the interesting thing, though, about pride, you guys. The thing about pride is it also works when things are going badly. Because when things are going badly, here's what pride says. What pride says when things are going badly is, why am I suffering more than other people? Why am I having a harder life than other people? This isn't fair. I'm owed.
Whether your life is going poorly or whether life is going well, pride makes us look at everything in life and says, I am owed. I deserve more than I'm getting. I deserve better than I am doing. I am owed every bit of this. Can I ask you a question? Is this true of you? Before we get to what humility is, can I just spend two minutes on something that we Americans love to believe? It's called the myth of the self-made man. I, I should have made it gender neutral. Should have made it the myth of self-made persons, but you know the country that we live in. Self-made man. Can I just, I, this, is, this is common sense to maybe half of you, but I just need to spend two minutes on this myth. Number one, none of us got to where we are today, hello, without the help of somebody else. Nobody got to where we are today because without our parents, some of us, our friends, our mentors, our church leaders, our teachers, our spouses, and the list goes on. If we are successful, if we have any good things in our life, the truth and the reality is because there's a community of people who came alongside of us. Can I get an amen? Secondly, how much of our success is due to factors under our control? Hello, somebody, you did not choose your race. Hello, somebody, you did not choose your gender. You did not choose the country you were born into. You did not choose the century you were born into. You didn't even choose the family you were born into. How much of our success is really due to our control? No, you say, I worked hard. I know you did. But with the mind, the brains, the body, the health, the talents, the friendships, connections that God and God alone gave you and me. How many of us in here chose the basic abilities and talents that we're able to use to get to where we are today? Can we give credit where credit is due? The myth of the self-made person Do you know what humility is? Here's what says humility is. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Those who make, for, for, for who makes you different than anyone else? Why, what do you have that you did not, and here's the key word, receive. And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as you did not? Humility, hello somebody, you're a Christian for kind of love. Humility looks at everything and says, all of this is a gift. All of this is a gift. Pride is that which looks at everything and claims, if I could put it this way, the author of what really is a gift. Pride is what looks at your life and my life and says, I'm the author of it. I composed it. I made it. I did it. That's by me. And so I'm owed. When in fact, humility says, everything that's been into my life has been given to me. It's been brought into my life as a gift. Humility looks at everything in life and says, I don't deserve this. Frankly, humility looks at everything in life and says, if I got what I really deserved, where would I be? Humility says everything is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And you see the shift in Nebuchadnezzar. You see it, verse 35, when he says, this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar saying, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about who? Himself. 
he realizes that he doesn't get what he deserves. You see in the vision, God leaves the stump of the tree instead of uprooting the tree. And Nebuchadnezzar is able to say, I am not getting what I deserve. Who knows what would happen if I got what I really deserved? And he lets his experience humble him rather than harden him. And then in a second, he recognizes that what he thought before were by, his by right. Now he sees as a gift. Verse 36, my counselors, he says, they still wanted to talk to me after all that. This is Nebuchadnezzar saying, can you believe that my counselors, there's no sense of, do you know who I am? I am the great Neb. Of course they would want, they actually wanted to talk to me. Humility receives everything as a gift. Now somebody who says, I know, that's, that's terrible, that's terrible. Because you're saying Christians are people who go around thinking they just don't deserve anything. Well, you're failing to make a distinction. Humility says, I don't deserve it, but man, am I grateful for it. But there is a toxic form of false humility that says this, I am too evil for it. I am too bad for it. And so I don't deserve it. And so I don't want it. But the reason why this toxic false humility is because at the end of the day, you're saying, I want to be able to what? Earn it. And if I don't earn it, I don't want it. Church, are you with me this morning? Because, you know, if you're sitting there going, well, that's not me, Peter. I, I'm fine. I understand. There's three more of what pride is, so I'll get to you a little bit later. But, but can, we, can we just stop for a moment in case you're going, this sermon is for somebody else. Why am I sitting here? Three, just three quick checklists before we get to the number one. How's your joy? How's your joy? Boy, this was so convicting me for this week. How's your joy? Do you know why I asked that question? Because if you see everything in life as a gift, aren't you surprised by gifts? Yeah. Aren't you surprised? I, I don't deserve that. That was completely unexpected. Where did that come from? Doesn't humility look at life as a gift and saying, where did that come from? I don't, thank you. Yeah. Do you know why you're bored? Because you're too proud to enjoy life. Wow. How's your joy? Or you walk around going, I'm old. I deserve. What? Okay, secondly, how's your gratitude? How's your gratitude? You guys, I've talked about this a lot. How's your gratitude? And, and, and I understand I'm preaching this sermon in America in 2018. So I know the audience that I'm preaching to, okay? How's your gratitude? What do I mean? James says every good and perfect gift is from what? Above. To be grateful, we have to recognize that any good thing that comes into our lives is not random, it's not accidental, it's not things that we merit or earn. Every single thing that comes into our life, James says, is a gift. And so the reason why I struggle with gratitude is because we look at our lives and the good things and we say, that's because of my resourcefulness. And the thing is, if you and I think that what's good in our lives is a result of our resourcefulness, then of course we're going to think that we are entitled to those blessings. But the greater is a sense of of entitlement, the less you'll be prone to be gratitude. And the bigger the sense of entitlement, the smaller the sense of gratitude. How's your gratitude? I'm serious. How is your gratitude? Are you walking around saying, I earned it. I deserve. 
Or are you walking around saying, all of this is from you? The gospel bleaches out a sense. Of, uh, third, third, third. Can, can, you, can you forgive yourself? Why? This is simple. Because if God says I've forgiven you and you say I will not forgive myself, you're saying I am a higher authority than you. But do you know why we struggle with forgiving ourselves? Because at the end of the day, we want to earn it. We want to earn it. We want to so badly earn. If I can't earn it, then I don't want it. That's why you can't forgive yourself. It's real quiet in here, and this is good, because I need to talk about why do we struggle with this? Are we just bad people? Do we just come out of the womb just arrogant? No. Well, for some of us, like me, yes. But for most of us, do you know why we struggle with this so much? Now, think, think. I need you to look at me now for a woman, because this is like the pivot. This is huge. Here's the reason why we struggle so much with pride. Listen, if everything is a gift... If God is the author of everything in life, that means we are totally dependent on him for all things, which means we are no longer in control. And we as human beings cannot stand the thought of not being in control. And so... The only way to justify that we are not dependent on God for all things is to blind ourselves to just how everything is a gift. This is a diagnosis of scripture of why you and I at the end of the day, so Paul, which this, I go back to this a lot, Romans chapter 1, because Romans chapter 1, if you know, Romans chapter 1 is like the anchor that gives perspective to all of what, what, what human, humanity is. Verse 1, verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, this is what Paul says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress, what? Suppress the truth. Who blind themselves to the truth. Who will not acknowledge the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The fundamental posture, Paul says, of the human heart is this. I will not glorify God, nor will I give thanks to him. Why? Because that means acknowledging that he is creator. I am creation and I am dependent on him for all things. Which means I'm not in control. And so life becomes one long struggle. Listen, please. Some of us, listen, please. Life becomes one long struggle to, is he in control? Am I in control? Is he in control? Am I in control? Is he in control? Am I in control? Is he in control? It's one long struggle to suppress his truth. You are in control. I am not in control. But if you're sitting there, well, I'm, I'm a good Christian. Of course, I know I'm not in control. Really? Can I ask you a question? Who controls your body, your tongue, your money, your thoughts? Who controls what you do with your body? Who controls what you do with your money? Who controls what you do with your tongue? (sighs) 
Let's keep going. Pride says, I did it, I deserve. Secondly, secondly, if you follow on, pride also defaces humanity. Pride dehumanizes us. It defaces humanity. What do I mean? We free from the text, Nebuchadnezzar went insane and lived like an animal-like existence. Can I just give me like one minute to do this, one minute to do this, one minute to do this? Because obviously you can't study this passage without talking about the issue of mental health or mental illness. Let me just say this because we don't have, I'm, I, this is another sermon so let me just say this. Let me just, I am a pastor. I am a pastor who believes that you can't just pray your way to mental health. Can I say that? Is it okay to say that? Okay, okay. I, I just want to put that out there, that I, as a pastor, you might walk out going, he's unspiritual. Okay, then I'm unspiritual. But I just want to say once and for all, real clear, you can't just pray your way to mental health. Mental health has a number of reasons, spiritual, biological, physical, environmental, and social. Okay, for some, for some, for some, when they get their spiritual life in order, they get better. For others, their spiritual life is in order, they don't get better. They need help. They need medication. They need therapy. They need treatment. They need a number of other things. To say that mental health is solely a spiritual issue is being naive and problematic. And we as a church need to stop saying that. We do. We do. Having said that, the rest of you that clapped, you need to listen to this. Having said that, having said that, we also can't ignore spiritual issues. Do you hear me? It's all of the above. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, we see what? That part of it was spiritual. It's judgment for sin. He begins to live like an animal for seven times, which by the way, probably even seven months or seven seasons, which would about a year and a half or so. What does it teach? Here's what it teaches, and you need to know this. Here's what God's saying about pride. God says, because you wanted to be more than what I made you to be, now you will live in existence as less than what I made you to be. Because in pride, you wanted to be more than a man, now in pride, you will be less than a man. To which you go, break it down for me. How does pride dehumanize us? Three ways. One, pride enables you to be unable to sympathize with people. Pride makes you unable to empathize with people. Please listen, please listen. Nothing makes you and me more human than being able to feel deep compassion. Nothing makes us more human than being able to feel deep compassion and empathy for other human beings. Nothing makes us more human than being able to mourn, genuinely mourn with those who mourn and are hurting. To really make this extreme example, your cat, when you're feeling down, and I'm going to offend animal lovers here, but that's okay. When you're feeling down, your cat comes next to you and nuzzles next to you, and you're going, oh, she knows. No, she's hungry. <laughs> she's hungry. Cat owners, can I get an amen? She's hungry. Don't get it confused. Sorry. She's hungry. I have to tell you this morning, your cat, your cat can't imagine what you're going through. Cats, animals, don't have the ability to mourn with those who mourn. They can't. Let me say this again. Nothing makes us more human. Let me put it this way. What would our world today look like if every human being walking on this planet was able to feel deep empathy? for another human being. 
What would our city look like? What would our city look like if we, every single person, religious or not, walked around, were able to genuinely mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice, feel deep empathy? Henry Nouwen, when I'm lost for words, I go to Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen says this in his book, Compassion, the, 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 the Core of Spiritual Leadership. Compassion manifests itself in solidarity, the deep consciousness of being part of humanity, the existential knowledge of, one, of the oneness of the human race, the intimate knowledge that all people, however separated by time and space, are bound together by the same human condition. What he's saying there, you and I see whenever national tragedy strikes. Do you remember what happened? after 9-11? Do you remember after 9-11 if you were around? Do you remember? I still remember vividly after 9-11. Total strangers, total strangers across race, ethnicity, religious background, total strangers coming, giving food, water, an arm, a prayer, a hug. Total strangers across barriers coming, sitting and mourning and weeping and praying with people that they didn't even no, why, why, why? Because there's something in you, something in me that says, this is the best part of humanity. You know what pride does? Pride makes it impossible. Pride is like a cancer that eats you up, that makes it unable for you to mourn with those who mourn. To rejoice with those who rejoice. Secondly, pride defaces humanity. Because it makes you morbidly self-conscious. Oh, good Lord. I want to talk to some of you this morning. The proud self is constantly, desperately self-conscious all the time. How am I looking? How am I doing? How am I performing? How am I being treated? By the way, do you do that when you come here? Do you do that? It's your first question when you come in here. Who's going to mourn with me? Rather than, who can I mourn with? Do you come in here and go, who's going who's gonna to make me feel better about myself? Versus who in here needs an arm, a prayer, a hug? Yeah. I love this proverb. Proverbs 7, uh, 13, 10 says, Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. That's an interesting word picture. Because when you give somebody advice, you're talking about the thing, right? You, when you give someone advice, you're talking about, I'm going to talk about me and Jenny real quick, okay? Jenny will say to me, Peter, can you put this picture up on the wall? And I'll be like, sure. Then she'll say, hey, you put the nail too high. You put the nail too high. Put it a little lower. Put it a little lower. <laughs> Here's what happens in our interaction. She's talking about the nail. She's talking about the picture. She's talking about the wall. But here's Peter's response. I know how to hang a picture. <laughs> well, you, you think I don't know how to hang a picture? Why are you telling me how to hang a picture? Excuse me, excuse me. Peter, we're talking about the nail. We're talking about the wall. We're talking about the picture. Do you know what the arrogant, proud self does? It makes it all about what? See, this is why. What we call in our culture, people with low self-esteem, they are some of the most arrogant people walking around. I'm going to be gentle. Do you know why? Pride works both ways. Pride could work in the braggart, swag, but pride also works this way. I'm a total failure. 
I can't do anything. I'm a low achiever. But the entire time, the focus is on who? By the way, that interaction, that really happened. <laughs> in a number of, I know how to put in a light bulb. Why are you telling me how to put a light bulb? Like you, are you walking around right now feeling slighted, hurt? And it's actually about something else. It's not about you. Uh, okay. One more. Pride constantly compares itself to others. Oh, boy. Mere Christianity, which I think is like essential reading for every Christian. There's a beautiful chapter on pride. We'll see if Sulu says why. Pride gets no pleasure of just having something. Pride only gets pleasure by what? Having more of it than the next person. Proud people aren't really proud of being successful. They're proud of being what? More successful. Proud people aren't proud of being good-looking. They're proud of being what? More good-looking. Proud people aren't being proud of being smart. Proud people are proud of being smarter. That's why there's one part when he says, lust may drive a man to want to sleep with women, but in lust, he may actually want her. Here's what a proud, arrogant person does. He pursues that woman, not just for lust, but he says, so I know that I could have her and have it over you. Can I ask you something? Do you feel threatened when you're around good-looking people? Do you feel threatened when you're around other intelligent people, smarter people, sharper people? Do you feel threatened? Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you want to go, oh, I don't want to be here? A question, just an honest question. Why? Why are you not comfortable in your skin? Do you feel uncomfortable on people that make more money? Why? Why are you not comfortable in your skin? Uh, men, women too, but men, can I ask you a question? Why do, you, why, do you not, why do you not admit your weaknesses? Last Sunday, 9 o'clock service, at the end, I gave an altar call, and I said, for those of you that live an attitude that says, my will be done, stand up. And there's like 25, 30 people that stood up, and I had a dude talk to me afterwards and said, Pastor Peter, did you notice that of all the people that stood, they were mostly women? Men. And that's not just a men issue. It's women too, but I just want to speak... Do you have a hard time acknowledging your vulnerability, weaknesses, what you stink at, what you are struggling with? The question is why. By the way, do you know why we struggle with this so much? Do you know, do you know why we compare ourselves? Do you know why? Here's, just, here's, here's, here's the reason why. When you and I were created by a heavenly father, we lived in a relationship with him where we knew we were loved, we were secure, we were people of worth. When we decided to come out from under that rule and reign, we lost that sense of significance, unconditionally being loved and sense of worth. So here's what we do. We have to manufacture that now. We have to produce that now. We have to find it somewhere. And the way that human beings decided, here's how I'm going to find it, is by comparing ourselves to people less than us. So you and I, every single day, walk around going, who can I compare myself to to make me feel better? So here's a question. Who do you hate the most? Who do you not want to be around? Republicans say Democrats. Democrats say Republicans. Conservatives say liberals. Liberals say conservatives. Again, I just want to ask you why, 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 why? Pride 
lastly, is on a collision course with God. Do you know why pride is so toxic? I will, CC. Because all the stuff that we said, by the way, can I just ask, can I just ask, can I just ask, do you, do, you know, do you know why, do you know why, for some of us, just sitting here and just listening to this right now, if you're sitting here going, oh God, I wish you would just be done with it. As I said last week, the sign that you have the cancer of spiritual pride in you is that you think this is not an issue for you. Biblical diagnosis. Pride is a collision course with the, the nature of God. How, how, how so, Peter? Well, here, here's how so. The Bible, Old and New Testament, affirms that our God is a God, Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who existed as three distinct persons, yet one same God for all of eternity. The question is always has been, what, what have they been doing for all of eternity? Do you know what they've been doing? A dance. What do you mean, Peter? Here's what Jesus said about what the Trinity has been doing for all of eternity. In John 17, Jesus gives a glimpse. In verse 24, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Early Christian theologians had a name for the inner life of the Trinity. And here's the Greek word, perichoresis, from which we get the English word what? Choreography. Do you know what the Trinity has been doing for all of eternity? They've been doing this choreographed dance. You know what the dance looks like? Here's what the dance looks like. The father's saying to the son, I, I want to give you glory. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to adore you. I love you. The son going to the Holy Spirit, I want to give glory to you. I want to serve you. I want to adore you. I want to, and the Holy Spirit going to the father, I want to glorify you. I want to love you. Each other, I serve you. I glorify you. I honor you. I serve you for all of eternity. Which means that if your entire posture in life is I want to get glory. I want to get claim. I want to get attention. I want to get validation. I want to get worth. You are fundamentally on a collision course with the very nature of God. We walk around all day every day. How can I get claim, get glory, get somebody to pay attention, get validation, get somebody? Holy Spirit, Father, Son, all of eternity has been, it's about you, it's about you, it's about you, it's about you, it's about you. Sat with a 22-year-old Moody student, and he said, Pastor Peter, give me one advice as I'm about to get married. I said, you are the most selfish person on the face of the planet. Get over yourself. He said, thank you very much. <laughs> And I said, if you'll remember that, that you are the most selfish person on the face of the planet, then your marriage will work. How do you get healed? How do I get healed? Can I just, can I just ask, are you tired, some of you, from just being slighted all the time, just being pissed off all the time? And anybody here just tired? Anybody here tired of being morbidly self-conscious? Anybody? I'm serious. I, I am. I'm tired of like evaluating my day going, oh, she said this and he said that. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the self-absorption. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. It is exhausting, man. And here's the thing. I'm about to turn 50 soon. I can't do it. I can't heal myself. I can't. I've tried. I've done everything. Humble yourself, Peter. I can't. Try. I can't. Do you know the only way I can heal is I have to let God undress me. What are you talking about, Peter? C.S. Lewis in one of his books. 
There's a character. There's a character. Eustace is a proud, arrogant little boy. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Who's on a journey, and he and his friends, Lucy and Edmund, land on an island. Sissy, you can come on up. And Eustace decides that he finds a dragon's lair, and he decides in his greed and pride to keep the treasure for himself. So he puts on a gold bracelet and falls asleep, and he wakes up realizing what? That he has turned into a dragon. But he finds that no matter how many layers of dragon skins he managed to peel off, he's still a dragon. And that night, of course, Aslan, a lion, Christ figure, appears to him, leads him to a large well, and he tells him there's healing and transformation, but he says, I have to undress you first. And I quote from the book, then the lion said, you'll have to let me undress you. But I was afraid of his claws. Eustace says, I, I can tell you. And I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay down flat on my back to let him do it. The first, first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like belly, but oh, it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and a bit smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, because I was still very tender underneath now that I had no skin on and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but only for a moment. After that it became perfectly delicious and as soon as I started swimming and splashing I found that all the pain had gone from my arm and I saw why. I turned into a boy again. I need you to pay attention for the next two minutes like you've never paid attention before. Here's how God undresses you and me. If the fundamental fountain from which pride arises is our desire to keep control, what do you think a loving heavenly father will do? A loving heavenly father, please listen, in love, in love will bring people, situation, circumstances, conflict, or relationships that you will not be able to control. You see, unless and until you realize that you and I cannot manage that person, that circumstance, that situation, that conflict, unless you and I come to the realization that we can't manage that, we will never look to the true manager.
so in love, God will bring you and me to a place where we literally come to that place of, I can't control that, I can't manage that. And let's be real here. Majority of us in here, that, because we're like, I'm going to use my money to do that. I'm going to use my smarts to do that. I'm going to, we will, we have an endless supply of things that we have been accustomed to look to, to control and to manage. And I am telling you right now, God will bring you and me to that place where we will run out of options to use, to manage and to control. And we will literally fall on our knees and say, I'm not smart enough, I'm not resource enough, I'm not network enough, I don't have enough money for it, I do not have what it takes to control or to manage this. And I am turning now to the true and only manager. That, I know, is the only way that anybody has been broken of their pride. And let me be very clear. If you get scared by the word broken, think of it this way. Think of it as being broken open to receive from God. So here's our challenge. Our challenge this morning is you are sitting here. I'm almost done. You're sitting here and you're going, ah, Peter, I want to be able to say, God, I want your will for my life, not my will. I want your will to be done and not my, for my future, for my children, for my family, for my career, for my ministry, for everything. I want your will to, you, you sit there and go, hey, but, but, but how do I know I can trust him? How do I know I can trust him? How do I know I can trust him? And I need to end with the gospel. How do I know I can trust him? How do I know I can trust him that when he undresses me, when he undresses me and I am being broken open that I can trust him Peter how do I know here's how Nebuchadnezzar look at Nebuchadnezzar look at Nebuchadnezzar here's a guy who thought he was the master of the universe and realized he was nothing and in Jesus we had someone who was truly the master of the universe and yet he became nothing for who for who Isaiah, let me end with this. 52.13, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Church friends, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ in pride. We wanted to be more than we are and to God's place. The gospel tells us that Jesus, who was God, took our place. In pride, we became dehumanized and we dehumanized each other. The gospel tells us Jesus was so beaten, so gored, so slashed, so whipped that he didn't even look human. Why? So that we can be healed by his stripes. 
You can't trust him? You can't trust that Jesus who says, in love, I will need to undress you first? How many of you know that you haven't just been failing God, but you've been fighting God for his place? How many of you know that that is the essence of pride and arrogance? How many of you know that it's your desire to control that lies at the root of everything that ails us? Furthermore, how many of you are willing to say this day and every day forward, God, it's not something we do once. It's something we do every day. This day and every day forward, God, I, I want to embrace your will for my life, not mine. I want your kingdom to come and not my kingdom. I want your will to be done on earth. How many of you want that? How many of you are saying, I want that, God. I want your will for my life, not mine. I want your kingdom agenda for my life, not mine, God. And yeah, this scares me to death, but Lord, I relinquish surrender control because I've never been in control in the first place to you. How many are willing to do that this morning and every day afterwards? Pray with me. <laughs>